The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Today we have an action-packed show. Um, as we all watch the news, we are watching ratings of our president really um, deteriorating. They're falling. And um, I wanted to do a show that talks about a historical perspective of blame and why leaders always have to get blamed some more than others. And my first guest actually wrote a book called Brand It Like Barack. His name is Gary Kaskowitz, and he is an associate professor of management with Moravian College Economic School of Business. So the first part of this show is really going to talk about what Barack did to do it right. And he did a lot of things right while he was running for office. Um, then we're going to discuss later on a little bit, you know, the psychology and the gestalt of things that may have faltered while he was in office. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Cindy. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, I'm so honored to be on the show. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that your book is great. Thank you for sending a copy, Brand It Like Barack. It's um, from a marketing perspective, I think that it captures a lot of the right things that anybody can do to sell a product. And what you do in a fun but professorial way is really outline what it takes to market a product correctly, to make a product a star, whether it's a person or a can of Coke. Um, and why don't you talk about some of the highlights, and then we'll go into specific questions, of everything that was done right from a strategic marketing perspective that made the first African-American president get to the presidential seat. Absolutely. Thank you, Cindy. Um, yeah, Barack Obama actually did so much right in his campaign from a marketer's perspective that I found it absolutely amazing that, you know, people weren't studying this more closely. And, for example, what he did, in my opinion, which was really, really smart, was he took advantage of what we would call classic storytelling structure, and he positioned himself and his entire candidacy in part of this. And what I mean by that is that um, Barack Obama was able to understand the psyche of his core audience, of what it is that they wanted, and was able to position himself in this notion of what I would call product as prop where he was allowed in himself to be the solution to the people's personal stories they were trying to fulfill. And this was done in many, many different ways um, throughout his entire campaign, from how he actually spoke to how he actually ran his campaign rallies to the actual words and symbolism and metaphors that he used throughout the entire process. He was able to take advantage of a conflict that people were having in their lives and say, hey, Here's how I can be a solution to that internal conflict you are feeling. 
Right. There was, and you mentioned, you know, emotional connection. He was able to play to people's passion and emotions. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, okay, so he started that right from the very beginning. He brought in a really great marketing team, yeah? Absolutely. He, he brought in a very good team in that um, – he took again. What happened with Obama, which was very interesting, was he took advantage of these facets, and instead of at first running like a traditional politician, which is you know typical, let me just bury you in advertising and just you know put signs and posters everywhere you happen to turn and get my name out there. He didn't really do that in that method at first. He came in from a more emotional aspect. Um, in marketing, we would talk about different ways to gain what we would call competitive advantage or to get name recognition for yourself. And he took advantage of what we would decide, what we would consider to be the marketing advantage. I'm going to better outmarket you. And so he used that emotionality from the very beginning. He staked out a ground for himself by writing his book and his speeches of what he believed and not necessarily attacking other people, which is really crucial for him, uh, at least at first. No, exactly. And, and McCain didn't really used those methods, did he? He was more of a traditionalist in is, terms of the way that he um, marketed himself for president, and he did use a lot of a lot more traditional advertising or conventional advertising. It, it was tough for him. Oh, absolutely. It was tough for McCain. It was tough for Hillary Clinton. It was tough for a lot of them against Obama because they were thinking, you know, and acting in accordance with traditional political marketing and how it had been done up to that point. And Obama had recognized that that isn't really the best way to do it, especially if you don't have the name or the war chest that my competitors did. And you have to recognize when Obama entered the race, um, there were over 37% of the voting public did not know who he was. He was going against Hillary Clinton, who was a household name with major, major resources. And so Obama could not afford to be a traditional, let me try to bury you an advertising marketer. Right, right, and um, he, you know, again, it's amazing, and I and I love the thesis of your book because it really works for any product, and every marketer should get it, brand it like Barack. Um, in your book, you talk quite a bit about truth versus true, mm-hmm. and I guess that means an overall storytelling and marketing. What do you mean by that? Oh, absolutely. Um, truth versus true, when I talk about that notion, for storytelling and marketing to work, and here's the premise for it, what it essentially says is, at least in our society, people have pretty much what we need in terms of our actual day-to-day needs being met for the most part. And when people are operating in a competitive environment, whether it be a politician or a lipstick or guardian tools, it doesn't really matter, our society, our consumers have multiple choices. You're not the only one selling the whatever it is you're selling. Because of that, you have to somehow gain more emotional loyalty with people when you are selling your product, whatever it is. Uh, it could be yourself as a politician. And with that idea of truth versus true, what that says is, okay, everybody today for the most part is trying to fulfill their own personal life story. They are in essence saying, hmm, I want to be feeling like I have something going on in my life that makes me feel I can overcome obstacles and challenges because I really want to excel that way. And so a Nike comes in and says, hey, here's my tool which allows you to overcome your challenges. So truth versus true basically says, I have something that I feel I should have as a consumer, as, uh, as a person. And that is my truth. Society believes we should have this. Um, however, 
it's not true for me. I don't actually have it in my life. And because of that, I want to reconcile this eternal truth of, yes, we should all have the right to, in Obama's case, the right to have a say in our government, the right to have somebody be there representing our interests and not just representing our own, things like that. It may not be true for me. And in that case, I have what we would consider to be a conflict, a naturally inherent conflict. And in terms of storytelling, conflict is key. Um, Once I have a conflict that I can identify, you are not getting what it is you believe in, then I can step in as a solution to that, positioning myself or whatever I sell as a prop for you to resolve your conflict. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, um, you know, a lot of times, oftentimes in political advertising and marketing campaigns, a lot of people get turned off because they feel right away that there's not a truth. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, you you watch a conventional public service public service ads. Um, you, know, or, you know, well, I mean, they're you know they're paid ads, but um, you know, you're watching what's going on in the state of California, for example, right now, um, Whitman versus Brown. And I I think I don't know if you've seen any of those advertisements because you're on the East Coast, but um, you know, there's a lot of things. There, there, are, there are things in those particular ads that don't ring true. They're right. just mudslinging at each other. What do you feel? What's your feelings about mudslinging in political advertising? In all truth, mudslinging is probably not a best option, um, especially if you're trying to establish a name for yourself when you don't really have the name to begin with, because all that comes out to play is that people psychologically don't really like to hear that necessarily. I mean, people think they do, but in reality, we don't. And what that means for our marketer for mudslinging, and here's what Obama, again, did very, very intelligently when he started his campaign. You do have to stand against something. This is really important for any marketer to understand. I need to have stand against something. That notion I mentioned before about conflict. I need to find the conflict. I need to ratchet it up. I need to make you feel really dissatisfied with your lot in your life, if you will, and I need to show how I can be your solution. And that's a classic marketing principle. Um, the way to do that effectively, though, is not through mudslinging my competition or my opponents directly because people got turned off by that. The key here is to go back to that idea of truth. I will tell you that, for example, if I'm a politician, you are feeling that people are not listening to your voice, that people are just doing politics as usual, and they are not letting you have a say in what your government is. And that's a terrible thing because you have the right to have a say in what you are doing. You have the right to actually be represented by somebody who has your better interests, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm going to do is attack that mindset, not the opponent. And so I don't think mudslinging is actually a very good idea. I think people in politics are better off attacking the, the mindset that their politician represents. And that's what Obama did in his early work, was attacking mindsets versus names. Right. No, you didn't see the what you generally see. And by the way, I mean, you know, Whitman and Brown are really, they're known names. They're not unknown mm-hmm. entities. Um, but it's still turning, I, I think that it still turns people off. The principles are the same whether they're known entities or unknown entities. Oh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And in fact, I mean, shifting away from politics for a minute, but how this is done in, in business and marketing in general, uh, the whole notion like Apple, everybody obviously knows Apple, another fine company, where they came on the scene and they took on, on Microsoft successfully, not 
directly attacking Microsoft, but attacking what Microsoft represents. And that's how they started with their 1984 commercial for the Macintosh. And even today with their ads where they poke fun at Microsoft, yeah, they're mentioning them by name, but they're still attacking the mindset of what Microsoft is, or what people think Microsoft is, I should say. And rather than the actual, oh, Microsoft is terrible evil, they kind of poke fun in their own way, staying true to their story. And that's why even if you're well-known and have a well-known brand name, um, as uh, you know, Obama, Whitman, and such not, you still want to be careful about attacking people directly because that's not as effective as attacking what it is you stand for versus attacking you. I know. I think that's very true. We're coming to the end of the segment, but I wanted to ask you what the voting public should know about political marketing, even though you touched upon it in a lot of the questions that I've asked you through the segment. Certainly. Uh, political marketing basically... My belief with that is people oftentimes are not as aware as they ought to be about the classic psychological principles and techniques that marketers use when selling themselves, politicians included. Um, I work with a lot of people who, you know, I've met a lot of people throughout my life where, you know, they believe politics uh, is different. Politics do not market. Politics is, you know, above that. It's like, well, no, politics is marketing at the end of the day like anything else. And I believe that people need to be aware of the various techniques that are employed of how we learn and how we, you know, are making our decisions, our consumer decisions, because at the end of the day, politics is a consumption just like uh, your coffee. No, it sure is, isn't it? And just quickly, why is watching television one of the most dangerous things local politicians, you know, you talk about um, watching television being a dangerous thing for Mm -hmm. a local politician to do. Absolutely. The reason I said that is... Local politicians are usually, again, along the lines of what I was referring to before, the ones who don't necessarily have a name. People don't really know who they are. Um, they're the ones who try to knock on your door and put signs in your yards, and you, don't really, you have never met them or saw them prior to that. With that being the case, when you watch TV or watch other political campaigns, what you tend to do is model the people who have resources. And I mentioned before there's only three ways to have competitive advantage The first is what we call a resource advantage, which says, I have more money than you do. And because I have more money, I can basically outspend you and out-advertise you. And by following my lead on that, you don't have the resources to keep up with me, and I'll bury you. And so if you think that's the only way to play the game, chances are real good you're going to lose. And so it's the mindset I want to get people out of, especially when you don't have the resources. It's not really a bright idea to follow the people who do have the resources because they'll just lead you down that well, and you'll never get out of it. All right, we're going to wrap up this segment. We could continue more with this as we come back. Thank you for staying with us. Come back and hear more about Brand It Like Barack, and we'll be back with our guest, Gary Kaskovitz, in one second. Stand by. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. And we're back with Gary Katzwitz, Ph.D., Moravian College, School of Economics. Um, Gary, we're talking about your book, Brand It Like Barack. We talked about, in the first segment, just to summarize, we talked a lot about what Barack Obama did right during his presidential campaign. I think as an author now, you know, you face, you know, some challenges as well because a lot of people who are following current events are going to ask you, well, what did he, you know, what started to go wrong? He won mm-hmm. the public's hearts and he won political office by rolling out a great brand and product with all of the you know, strategies and all of the tactics that you outline beautifully in your book, Brand It Like Barack, and marketers really should take a look at this. But, you know, now as marketers, you know, chief marketing officers, etc., you always talk about rolling out a brand, and that's great, but how do you sustain a brand? And I think that's where his team sort of didn't take it to step two. It was almost like, let's get him into office and then we'll worry about it later. Um, Of course, I think that there's other factors going on and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the country that isn't necessarily the president's fault, but he's taking the brunt of it. But what could they have done? What could the Obama team, what could they have done better from a marketing perspective to keep his ratings a little higher and position him not so much as the, you know, 
as a person <laughs> that is, you know, it's, it's all his fault. I mean, how could they not have anticipated this in mm-hmm. phase two, which is his presidential <laughs> office? Thank you, Cindy. That's an excellent question and observation and something that I think is very, very important for uh, President Obama as well as any business person or marketer or any person trying to market themselves. In that, uh, here's a point I always try to make to students and whomever. Whenever you successfully sell yourself to your customer, to your audience, you have to be able to deliver on the brand promise that you made them when you sold to them. Because if you cannot deliver on that promise, then what's going to happen is going to be even worse than if you didn't use these emotional marketing techniques that I talk about. Because essentially I'm getting you convinced that I will solve your personal emotional story and be a solution to that, and if I don't deliver, you're going to really turn on me. And with that idea with President Obama, what I believe happened was that he did such a good job with the emotional marketing, but as you say, some of the stuff he was doing, and here's something I talk about quite a bit, is the notion of congruence. Everything you do as a business person, politician, or whatever, has to be congruent with the story that you've told all throughout. Now, what President Obama did when he was running for office was he positioned himself as a universal character that people could relate to, and that helped get him elected. The character he positioned himself as is what I would classify as a ruler character, somebody who says, I'm here, I'm the adult in the room, I'm going to make decisions, I'm going to use the resources and lead you to better outcomes, and at the end of the day, it's my choice, and I'm going to you know, make you better and be part of something better by listening and letting me do things with you and for you. And with that idea, that helped him get elected quite a bit because the millennials and others who support him said, hey, that's great. We want somebody to step up to the plate and do all this. However, once elected, certain things happen that you realize, especially in politics, you can't necessarily do that. And so, for example, with the whole Gulf oil spill, um, when Obama was seen as spending too much time talking about it and or not making decisive action fast enough by many people, that was very incongruent with the message he delivered initially of, I'm the ruler. That would be more of what we would call a caregiver type person or somebody who's trying to get to know you or fit in or talk to you about things and you know, get your viewpoints. That's great, but frankly, we don't expect rulers to do that. And so what happens with Obama and what is happening, in my opinion, is that his messages are off-message. He's not being congruent with everything that he positioned himself as to get elected initially. And that's so surprising to me. And, you know, I'm asking you this in terms of, you know, you're with the school. You're, you're, you know, you, you teach management. I mean, and obviously marketing is one of the things that you teach really well. And I... I'm just perplexed. I, you know, I've been in marketing for a really long time, and I was a chief marketing officer at Playboy Enterprises for 16 years. So, you know, I, we could never get away with something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with a brand as controversial as Playboy and U.M. Hefner, I mean, we mm-hmm. always had to be on top of our game. And, mm-hmm. you know, as the marketing and public relations team, we always had to have disaster plans, you know, we, we had to have them in the bank. I mean, if something happened where a playmate claims that she was, you know, raped in La Grotto or whatever it may be, we had to be on our game. I mean, we had to change our plan to 
keep the company looking like it was solid and together and that Hefner was a smart businessman, anything to not let the brand deteriorate, Mm -hmm. you know, from the years 1986 to 2002 are the years that I can address. And and it just blows my mind that they didn't seem to have the savvy in terms of crisis management and response. What, What is that? Oh, you're absolutely right. And one thing I do always talk about when I teach my classes is the notion of what we would call scenario analyses. You know, what's going on in the world, what could go on in the world, and how would we react to it if this were to occur, especially to be consistent with our core promise that we're delivering. And in Obama's case, again, that core promise is that very deep emotional promise, and he has to be seen as delivering that. Um, You know, as far as, like, when you worked at Playboy, that was... Playboy is one of the most brilliant marketing companies, and you could probably take some credit for this as well, in terms of this emotional marketing, in that they were always true to their image of the lover archetype or the notion of, you know, you have some connection in your life. And as you just said, anything that would hinder that possibly of, ooh, this is off message, you had a plan to address that to put it back on message. And that's always. what... I mean, you know, we, and if, and, you know, we had to just always be on... And, uh, you know, again, that just didn't seem to be happening, not only with the BP crisis, but, you know, with a lot of other unanticipated events that had taken place, Mm -hmm. um, you know, during, you know, this administration. And so, you know, basically in your school of thought and your teaching process, um, the, the staff in itself weren't prepared to keep what you call congruence. Absolutely. You know, to, to the brand. You're, you're running, you know, for the most important, one of the most important offices in the world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't give this message, which, you know, he obviously did brilliantly with his team while he was running, and then just have this incongruence where there's, you know, and that's probably a, a good reason why he's getting so much, he, you know, he, he's getting so much criticism. Absolutely. Yeah, the analogy I use here, Cindy, is basically think of um, the notion of story because storytelling marketing is one of the most powerful marketing techniques you can do. Uh, as I said, you actually did it quite well with Playboy Enterprises. Um, Obama did it incredibly well getting elected to be the presidency. Uh, the power of storytelling marketing it allows you to get your audience to become complicit and willing participants in your story and saying, oh, I want to be part of this story. And because of that, I'm going to keep doing business with you because, you know, I'm feeling my story fulfilled. That's beautiful when it's done properly. The downside, and here's the analogy I use with my students, um, with what you just said would be like with Obama. Imagine you're watching a wonderful movie and you're really drawn into the story. People will value that escapism. People will value the sense of being part of it. And yet now you have a scene where that boom mic drops down in the middle of the scene. And it totally takes you off story. It's like, wait a minute, that shouldn't be there or you notice something which is incongruent with what the story is representing, you're totally going to lose your faith in the story. And I think that is sort of what's happening with Obama, is that notion of he and his advisors maybe are not, or were not as well prepared for these scenarios, as you said, and how they could go off message and what they need to do to get them back on message. Right, right. Well, then we're experiencing buyer's remorse, as you call it in your book, to a large extent. Is there anything that... He can do, you know, that what kind of advice would you give 
you know, Barack and his administration now to take everything back on course. Is there any hope that he could correct himself during this presidential term? Oh, there's always hope. I mean, this happens all the time with celebrity rehab and that as well. The key is he has to pretty much immediately get back on message that got him elected to begin with. The notion of hope and change was actually very powerful for him, but people are not seeing that delivered now. They're seeing him as a typical politician. You know, attacking Republicans by name and party is not really a good strategy, frankly. People don't really like that. It might cater to some of the base, but it's not going to get the mass market behind him. And so my advice would be go back to those principles of, hey, we're all in this together. Yeah, we have crises. Yes, there are things that can go wrong. However, trust me with your, leader, trust me with your leadership, and I can still help guide us and use all our resources effectively in order to resolve our problems. And that's kind of how he got to begin with. He has to go back to that message and be congruent with it. Otherwise, he is going to have some serious problems. Well, I, you know, I'm glad to hear that there's hope. I think that he's getting a bad rap. But, you know, I, you know, you look at the history of the president and, you know, when things are bad, you know, of course the president is going to take the blame for it. Mm-hmm. But I think because Barack and his team did such a great job in, you know, when he was running for president, that's where the incongruence and disappointment comes in. And I think that you would agree that because he did such a great job while he was campaigning, mm-hmm. he's getting, there's double the disappointment because of the incongruence. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Whenever I do a really good job of getting your emotional loyalty, of getting you to really buy into what I'm selling and really feeling that I am a solution for you, and the better I do that, and Obama did a brilliant job with that, the higher expectations are. And because of that, the more I go off message, the more I'll mess it up. Well, Gary, I want to thank you for spending two segments with us on Voice America Talk. Um, You know, I'm sure you're working on your next book now. Yes, I am, actually. Maybe it's like (laughs) avoiding congruence. I don't know, but (laughs) I want to thank you so much, and congratulations on writing a great book, and maybe we'll have you as a guest on real soon again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time, Cindy. It's been a pleasure. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. 
Stop wasting time. Get what you want. Live your dream life. The Dream Big Revolution. Imagine having more freedom, better health, more money, happiness. Could your business be more successful? Unless you're living the life you want, you're wasting precious time. Your life is too valuable to waste. Let Leanne Hilgers help you find health, wealth, and happiness. Listen in and live your dream life. Join the Dream Big Revolution. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the 7th Wave Network. Never be satisfied. Let that be a lesson you take away from Double Time with Double D, featuring businessman and former NFL star Dave Duerson. We'll talk about the NFL with special focuses on the game itself, and Double D will take your calls and answer your emails live on the show. It's not Football 101, but rather an in-depth look in the locker room, on the field, away from the field, and opening up the mind of the player. The program will also feature positive messages. So tune in to Double Time with Double D, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back, everybody, and this whole entire show is dedicated to the the verb blame um, and what and how the president, the current president in office, Barack Obama, is getting the brunt of a lot of blame for a lot of things that are going wrong. And my next guest is David Contasta, and he's professor of history at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia. Did I say your name right, David? Hello? I'm sorry, stand by. We can't hear you right now on the air. Yes. Oh, there you are. I hear. Did you hear my intro? Yes, I did. Oh, you kind of went away. <laughs> um, well, welcome, David. Yes, thank you very much. Did I say your name right? Yes, you Contesta? did. That's very correct. Okay, very good. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah. And um, you're kind of the perfect guest for this show because you seem to have a historic perspective of presidents and the blame, the brunt of blame that they had to take for events that were taking place in our country. Am I correct? Yes, that is correct. And sometimes some presidents are blamed more than others, and some presidents seem to be Teflon like Ronald Reagan, and the blame doesn't stick. In other cases, it does. I think it has to do with the times. It has to do with the personalities of the presidents themselves. And I think it also has to do with whether the nation is sharply divided on issues. And you mention a lot, you mention a lot of presidents in our history. You just mentioned Ronald Reagan. And he, you're yes. right. He, he was blamed at the time, but he kind of... He he has sort of an okay legend, doesn't he? He has an okay legend. He was very charming, and a number of people back then could remember when he was in grade B movies, he was always the good guy, and I think he was able to carry that persona over into the movies. I'll tell you a funny story about an elderly aunt 
of mine who was about Ronald Reagan's age, and uh, she was absolutely charmed by him. And I was shocked one day when she said, Ronald Reagan can leave his shoes under my bed any night. So (laughs) (laughs) he had a lot of sex appeal with that generation, too. And you've authored um, 16 books. I wanted to give a little background on you. Um, You know, and they all seem to be, you know, they, they all seem to be about history's great giants, whether in politics or in anthropology. Am I correct? Correct. I wrote a book recently. It was published in 2007 called Rebel Giants, The Revolutionary Lives of Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin. And I published that book to coincide with the 200th anniversaries of these men. Lincoln and Darwin were both born on the same day in the same year, February 12, 1809, and they turned their worlds and ours upside down. And there were a number of similarities. I thought at first that it was just a coincidence in their birth dates, but after I got to looking into them, there were some unbelievable similarities and coincidences between the two men. Well, I have to hand it over to you because, uh, you know what, knowing both men and their legacies and what they accomplished, I would have never made the connection. (laughs) Yes, and to some extent there were a lot of similarities because they're going through the same developmental cycles. That is, they're getting married at about the same time, they're having children at about the same time, they're reaching middle age at about the same time. Uh, but there were a lot of other parallels, too, besides that. Well, well, that's fascinating, and maybe we'll do another show. Yeah, that's another talking topic about altogether. That. In fact, I gave a talk on the book out in your area in 2009 at the time of their 200th anniversaries for the Center for Inquiry there in Los Angeles. Well, no, that's, uh, that's very, very interesting, and I'm a huge Darwin fan and always try to... You draw upon his theory in a lot of conflicts that we face today in crisis management because he really had to deal with a crisis when he was facing the church. Yes, and we're still arguing. I'm not, but some people are still arguing about Darwin and are unable and unwilling to accept his theories of evolution. And I think that's part of the cultural divide that we're up against today with people on the right not being willing to accept science, not being willing to accept evolution and not being able to accept some of the things that are happening in current events today perhaps yes i think so very definitely um you know with that i mean i would guess basically that is tied to our economic malaise it's tied to our economic malaise i think it's tied to this clash between those who are willing to accept a more modern pragmatic view of reality and those who are clinging to more absolutist values. And evolution, I think, by its very nature, is flexible, pragmatic, situational, and that bothers a lot of people. Now, um, so let's talk about Barack Obama for a moment. Yes. Okay. There, let's take away the emotion. Let's take away, if we can, all of the emotional elements that are going on, a lot of the anger. Why, you know, is one of the reasons why he's just being blamed, is it because he's in office and that's inevitable? It's because in his office and that's inevitable and that happens again and again, although some presidents are able to escape the blame 
and some are not. And I think that's a rather intriguing situation. I think there are a lot of similarities between Franklin Roosevelt and Barack Obama, and I think other people have pointed those out, that is, they both have presided over an economic emergency. But Roosevelt was better able to blame it on Hoover and the Republicans because the Republicans had been in power for three years already during the Great Depression, and I think the country at large blamed them. It's unclear in a lot of people's minds, I think, now when this current recession began, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that it really began under the Bush administration and that Barack Obama has inherited a number of difficult situations that are not of his own making. And I think he has not made that case clearly. He wants to avoid partisanship on the one hand, but on the other hand, good job in explaining why he's not to blame. Yeah, well, you know, he should be a little bit more proactive, I think. <laughs> I think he should be. Um, and I'm wondering why he's not. I, You know, there was so much left over from the Bush administration. And those of us that follow current events are aware that, you know, this recession was a common before, you know, before it hit. I mean, anybody that is, you know, has their finger pulse on the marketplace knew that there were things that were taken place that, you know, may have caused a recession to happen. And it just seems to me right now that people who were Obama supporters are, you know, they, they've turned because they're so disappointed. They're disappointed, and I think that people on the left, liberal Democrats, are upset with him because he's not done a lot of things that they would like him to do. They would like him to tackle the question of, gays in the military, and I think he's tiptoed around that, and they don't think that he's fought hard enough even for legislation that has gotten through. With the health care legislation, there was a lot of disappointment that he wasn't able to get a more powerful, more comprehensive bill through the Congress. But I think that President Obama is aware, too, that most people in the country are in the center, and they're not on the left, and they're not on the right, and I think he's trying to do what Bill Clinton did to some extent, to govern from the center. It's just that the opposition party is not willing to do that and not willing to cooperate. There have been times in American history when this occurred, and occurred very well. During the Eisenhower administration, there was a lot of cooperation between Republicans and Democrats, and I think that was because of the Cold War and because of the fear of communism, and the atmosphere was just a lot less partisan. I want to ask you this, Dr. Contasta, you are a history professor. Um, yeah. You know, I, I guess my question is, when we read history books mm-hmm. online or offline, 20 years from now, what, what are people going to be saying about Barack Obama? Well, I think 20 years from now, he's going to receive a great deal of credit for the economic reform legislation, for the regulations now that hopefully are going to control Wall Street and going to control the banks. I think we'll be looking back at that as landmark legislation. And the same is true with the health care legislation. I think as time goes on that Congress is going to go back to it and going to extend it further and further. It's not going to be repealed once it's in place it's going to become very popular. Social Security, I think, 
gives us a good example in retrospect. A lot of Republicans, by the way, savaged Social Security and were against it. But Social Security became one of the most popular pieces of legislation ever passed, and it's been added to even the Eisenhower administration, even Republicans extended coverage of Social Security. So I think Barack Obama is going to be looked upon as a very successful president, maybe not as successful as Franklin Roosevelt because he's working in a different time. But I think he will be looked upon as a very successful president. I wish more people could hear that um, prediction because right now, I, I, you know, in my living history, okay, and I'm 51 years old, I really, I've never seen, or maybe because I'm just watching it so closely, I just have never seen so much haterating <laughs> in my lifetime. Well, there have been many examples of it, and I could just mention some. I could go way, way back to John Quincy Adams, who was president from 1825 to 1829. He was called a pimp by his political opponents. It was said that was he was in Europe, he was procuring women, for various people. They held it against him because he spoke fluent French. He had spent a lot of time in Europe when his father, John Adams, was a diplomat. And, of course, you know that any red-blooded American man doesn't speak fluent French. That's not something that we would want to have. And he was accused of uh, recommending unconstitutional legislation. He was way ahead of his time. He wanted federal aid to higher education. He wanted federal aid to scientific research. He wanted national highways and he was just eviscerated by the opposition because of that and he was hated too by many people because he was against slavery and he wanted native americans to be treated more fairly well you know what in the context of history i think he did okay um, and and his father and the hbo series showed well i think that well. there's a parallel here too one of the things that i think is hurting President Obama is anti-intellectualism in America. And 60 years ago, Richard Hofstadter wrote a very famous book about anti-intellectualism. Well, we're going to have to wrap up this segment. I'm sorry to cut you off, but the segment is over. I want to thank you for being on the show and contributing so much intelligence and some optimism. So thank you, Dr. Cantata, yes. and we'll have you on again real soon. Thank you. I love that. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn 
improve saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com money we love it we hate it and everything in between you can be the master of your life and your own economics join professor laurie lamantia each week for the program making peace with money laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness you'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. We're in our final segment. We're talking about blame that's being cast on our current president. And our last guest is Alan Abramowitz, and he is a political scientist with Emory University, and he's ri- he has written the book, The Disappearing Center, Engaged Citizens, Polarization, and American Democracy. Welcome, Alan. Glad to be with you. Sorry you called in earlier, a little East Coast, West Coast time <laughs> right. confusion. Um, but tell me about your book and how it talks about how it's relevant for what's going on in today's political landscape. Well, my book just looks at the growing polarization that we see in American politics that's actually been developing uh, over the last several decades um, and how it affects our elections uh, and how it affects the relationship between uh, government and uh, and the people. And... Uh, I started writing it, you know, during the during the Bush years, and uh, then kind of finished it um, shortly after Barack Obama became president. But my prediction was that, uh, uh, despite the differences in in personality and style, that uh, w- with Obama coming in and replacing Bush, that that this polarization was going to continue um, because it basically uh, reflects uh, very deep divisions uh, between. The outlook of Democrats and Republicans, not only in Washington but in the country. Right. So, I mean, everything that you probably had outlined in the book came to fruition. So, you have great insights on what's happening today. I see that the divide in American politics is not right or left, but between citizens who are politically engaged and not engaged is part of the thesis. Well, that's right, um, because what the evidence shows is that when you kind of divide the public up. 
uh, between those who are less involved in politics, don't pay much attention to it, uh, don't care very much, and those who are more involved, that, you know, as you kind of move up the ladder uh, from less to more engaged, that at each step uh, you find that people become more polarized. Um, so, you know, those who are more engaged, who are, you know, voters are more engaged than non-voters, are more polarized than non-voters, and then people who uh, uh, vote in primaries are yet more polarized, and, you know, people who do more things than that, you know, people who participate in campaigns, um, who uh, contribute money and so on, uh, are even more polarized. So uh, this just reinforces the divisions that we see uh, among our elected officials because, of course, they're going to be much more concerned about the opinions of those who are engaged than about those who are not engaged. Okay, so let's talk about the climate when Barack Obama was voted into office. Right. Um, it, were people more politically engaged because he marketed himself so well, or were the people who were not engaged sort of tuning him out? Well, well the interesting thing is if you look at the trends in political engagement uh, based on voter turnout but also other measures of political engagement, just interest, um, concern about the outcome of elections, and uh, participation in activities beyond voting. Uh, it actually didn't start in 2008. I mean, we see this increase occurring uh, between 2000 and 2004. We actually had a bigger increase in political engagement in 2004 than in 2008, uh, before Obama even came along. Okay, um, and that so was back, back in the Bush-Clinton the, this was in the, in the, the Bush Kerry uh, uh, election, actually in 2004. Uh, you know, we saw very high levels of engagement, uh, and I think what that reflected, uh, more than anything else, was polarization. Was that there was a deep divide? Uh, people, you know, were divided into those who essentially, you know, loved Bush or hated Bush, and on both sides, uh, you know, people were very engaged in the election. And so we saw the same thing again in 2008. Um, so I think it had less to do with Obama's personality and and charisma than it had to do with these deep divisions in the electorate. Now, of course, uh, Obama's, uh, as the first African-American major party candidate, certainly did uh, add another dimension to that and uh, helped to bring more uh, African-American voters into the process. But the big increase in uh, uh, turnout, for example, occurred between 2000 and 2004, and there was a much smaller increase in turnout between 2004 and 2008. Well, it's interesting to hear because there was so there just seemed to be so much more fanfare around hmm, about yeah. Around the I mean, that was the, the conventional wisdom uh, was that it was Obama's candidacy that was producing a great deal of this increase in engagement, um, and, and certainly the amount of money. Uh, going into the, the the campaign, the amount of money that was raised by the candidates, especially by the Obama campaign, was uh, uh, of a different order of magnitude. That, in part, reflected, I think, just a different strategy and different uh, use of technology uh, uh, to to raise money. But most of the indicators, for example, if you look at uh, the percentage of Americans not only who voted but who say that they talked about the election, uh, tried to convince someone else, you know, to vote for their candidate. Again, the big increase in that was uh, between 2000 and 2004. And 2000, by the way, was higher than 1996, which was a very low point. Um, so we see an increase in 2000. We see a big increase in 2004. Uh, and then we see another uh, more uh, smaller increase uh, in 08. And in 08, we had the, the highest turnout uh, in 
a presidential election in 40 years, but it was only marginally higher than 2004. Well, you know what? One of the one of the things you mentioned this before, to, you know, in terms of you know online communication. I mean, I think that Barack Obama is probably the first one to have won a viral race because of Facebook popularity. Uh, yeah, certainly we're seeing this new technology uh, being brought to bear, uh, and, and the Obama campaign, I think, was you know uh, largely responsible or partly responsible for doing that. Although you can trace some of this back to, again to 2004, the Dean campaign, uh, and then it was picked up by some of the other candidates. But and, and now it's spreading, you know, the, uh, moving down not from presidential politics to state and local elections. We're seeing more and more candidates trying. Uh, to use some of these same strategies to connect with voters and, of course, uh, uh, f- for fundraising purposes. Well, we have to close this show right now. I really want to thank you, Alan, for calling in. Sorry for the misunderstanding. Sure. And I think Gl- that, glad to be with you. <laughs> you know, the Disappearing Center, Engaged Citizens, Polarization, and American Democracy. Um, you know, Alan Abramovitz, I want to really thank you. Emory University, um, your your book seems to be very much on target and can probably lend a lot of intelligence to what's going on today. So thank you for joining the show. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care, and everybody have a great, safe weekend. Be good. Take care. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. Bye.